0: Hi, this is Pastor Patrick of Calvary Chapel, Wichita. I pray that the Lord will richly bless you as you listen to this message. Turn with me to Ezekiel 34. If you already had turned to John 9, you didn't waste time. We're headed there. We're just going to get some context in Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, 600 years before Jesus walked the shores of the Sea of Galilee, The word of the Lord came to the prophet, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? And obviously that isn't what was happening, or God wouldn't be speaking these words. He goes on to say, You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all of the beasts of the field when they were scattered. But God intends to remedy this condition and he says so later in this chapter. Verse 10, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more for I will deliver my flock from their mouths. Verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys, and in all of the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold... And feed in rich pasture in the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. As you turn back to John chapter 9, it's amazing to realize six centuries before Jesus was born, these words were written about his life and ministry. And you probably know, especially if you've been with us on Wednesday night, the ultimate fulfillment of these words hasn't happened yet. The ultimate fulfillment of what we just read is still future. The perfect fulfillment will happen when Jesus returns and regathers Israel to the land and rules over them as a shepherd from his throne in Jerusalem. But the fulfillment of those words began 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem for the first time which is where we left off in John chapter 9, and you can turn there now. John chapter 9, if you were with us last week, we saw Jesus heal a beggar of blindness. He had been blind from birth, and he did it publicly. He did it where people were. He did it with people watching, and having done that, he sent the man to to his neighborhood so that he could show himself healed to family, to friends, and he did that all knowing the Pharisees were watching. He'd been in and out of Jerusalem for several days now, perhaps several weeks. The Pharisees knew he was in town. They'd engaged with each other several times. In fact, it was only hours, perhaps days at the most, that the Pharisees had attempted again to kill Jesus. So when Jesus healed this man publicly, the results were predictable. Let's go to verse 13 where we left off. They, the man's friends and neighbors, brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. That was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. We talked about that last week. And we noted that in the eyes of the Pharisees, according to their interpretation of the law, according to the Talmud, Jesus had violated the Sabbath at least three different ways in healing the man. So the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. He said to them, He put clay in my eyes and I washed and I see. And the Pharisees said, Aha! Now we've got him. Verse 16, Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God and he just proved it because he does not keep the Sabbath. And we're going to fast forward through the next several verses because it's the kind of conversation we've seen before. The Pharisees are going to interrogate the man. They're not satisfied, so they go and interrogate his parents. They're still not satisfied, so they interrogate the man a second time. And to everyone's surprise, they end up right back where they started, utterly convinced that Jesus is a sinner, a heretic, an infidel, Verse 30, they're they're saying to this man, how do you not acknowledge that this man is a sinner? Clearly he is. The man answered, verse 30, and said to them, "Well, well, this is a marvelous thing. I don't understand. How do you not know where he's from? Clearly he's from heaven. He's opened my eyes. He's done a miracle. And we know that God doesn't hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him and clearly God heard Jesus because God healed me. Since the world began, it's been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. This was an unprecedented miracle. And it was a miracle that the prophet Isaiah said in two different places would be the signature of Messiah. When Messiah comes, Isaiah said, you'll recognize him in part because he will do a miracle that's never been done before. He'll heal someone who has been blind from birth. And this man says he, he, he did that. And, he, and, and, and people watched him do that. If this man were not from God, verse 33, he could do nothing. And the Pharisees said, oh, you know what? We hadn't looked at it that way. You're, you're right. Our, our bad. Let's, can, can we buy you lunch? <laughs> no, that's not what happened. Verse 34, they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and are teaching us. Who are you to correct the Pharisees? And they cast him out. They excommunicated him is how we would express it. But of course, that's not the end of the story, because with Jesus, it never is. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? Because I want to believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world. He didn't come to judge the world but he came to give the world an opportunity to escape judgment which means that some won't for judgment I've come into this world that those who do not see may see those who are willing to admit that they're in blind and in darkness those who are willing to admit their blindness in humility they can come to me Jesus is saying and be forgiven but those who think that they see they're going to be made blind They'll stay in darkness forever. And having said all of that, and we went through it quickly, but again, it's the kind of conversation we've read before. Now Jesus is going to do something that we haven't seen as often. He's going to go on the offensive. Jesus has been preaching truth to the crowd for weeks and months now, in in his time and and in our time together. But when he engages with the Pharisees, he's mostly a counterpuncher. The Pharisees attack, and Jesus responds, and they attack, and he responds. If you go back, reread John chapter 8, it's Jesus said, they said. Jesus said, they said. Back and forth like a a tennis match. But now Jesus is going to lean in, and he's going to challenge them. He's going to provoke them. Verse 1, most assuredly I say to you, verse 1 of chapter 10, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. Most assuredly is a phrase we read in John's Gospel when Jesus is about to say something heavy, something meaty, something weighty. It's a signal, okay, pay attention because this is going to be big. What's he saying that's, that's, that's this solemn and weighty? Well, let's take our time with this because sheepfold isn't a term that most of us use every day. But a sheepfold is an area close to a town or a village. It's not something that you find out in the middle of nowhere, but it's a place where shepherds coming into town or passing through town could park their sheep overnight. And usually it would be big enough that several different shepherds could, could park their flocks in the, in the same space overnight. Out, if they were out on the hills for, for days, weeks at a time, they'd improvise something. They'd find some natural barricades or they'd improvise something out of branches or whatever was around. But if they came into a populated area, typically a village would have a sheepfold where they could park the flock and then the shepherds would get a night off because the sheepfold was, a, was either a rounded or squared structure, usually piled up rocks about six feet high, and it would be enough for just one person to sit across the entrance and then the sheep would be trapped overnight and the shepherds could, could get a good night's sleep. So the, the thing is there was one opening in the sheepfold and one doorman enough to to keep the sheep in it was a really good system it worked for everybody except there was a vulnerability there wasn't a roof and depending on how large the sheep fold was if there were a lot of sheep between the dorman and and say the back wall a few people could slip over. You know, One or two could hoist a third over and he could help them over and they could find four or five sheep, slip their throats real quickly, pitch them back over and be gone before the doorman would be alerted. And of course, he went, if he went to investigate, well, then he'd be leaving the gate open. That was the vulnerability. Great image, Patrick. What's the point? <laughs> What's Jesus saying? His point is that the sheepfold is Israel. And the thieves and robbers are the people standing right in front of Jesus. It's the Pharisees that he's talking to. When he says, most assuredly I say to you, the you is the Pharisees. Because it was some of the Pharisees in verse 40, and he said to them in verse 41, and it's the same them that becomes the you of verse 1. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and he's saying, guys, you're taking stuff that doesn't belong to you. You're trying to steal my sheep. If they were true shepherds, verse 2, they wouldn't need to do that. They could walk in the door. The doorman would recognize them and let them in. They wouldn't have to rule by force or intimidation the way that God said through Ezekiel they were. To him, verse 3, to the true shepherd, the doorkeeper would would open and the sheep would, would hear his voice. He'd say, hey sheep, let's go for a walk. And they'd say, great. The sheep would hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Because a shepherd doesn't bully, doesn't steal, doesn't need to. Just shows up and says, let's go and sheep follow. Because the image of sheep and shepherd is so prevalent in Scripture, it shows up again and again, right? There's a lot written about sheep. I think if sheep weren't an illustration in the Bible, we wouldn't have as much written about them because sheep aren't particularly interesting. They're slow, they're stubborn, they're unattractive, and they don't know enough to come in out of the rain, which is why Jesus uses sheep to describe us. But seriously, other than that, there's not a lot to say about sheep. But but the one thing that people do observe again and again and again, if you start looking into this, sheep do learn voices. That's not just a fanciful illustration, it's a true fact. In, in places like Scotland, where there are shepherd and herdsmen today uh, roaming the hills with, with flocks of sheep, they name the sheep like we name dogs and cats. And sheep will come to the sound of their name. And they'll come to the sound of the shepherd's voice. And, and there's all kinds of, of stories that come out of this during World War I. And I haven't tracked down the, the reason, but there was a, a concerted attempt to steal the sheep flocks from Israel. And it didn't work because when the shepherds discovered that this was happening, they just stood on hills and called out and the sheep left the robbers and they went to their shepherds. There are other examples of of times that people have tried to disguise themselves as shepherds or even steal a shepherd's clothes and and dress up so that, you know, I've got the shepherd's smell on me. That might fool a dog. It doesn't fool a sheep because the sheep are listening for the voice. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one calling out. And the sheep know my voice. The sheep are saying, hey, that's who we've been waiting for. Jesus is saying, I came to Israel. I presented myself to the doorkeeper And the doorkeeper let me in. Now, who's the doorkeeper? You can read it a few different ways. The way I understand it, it's the Old Testament prophets because they're the arbiter of whether Jesus is who he said he was. It was the Old Testament prophets that said Jesus would be a descendant of David, would be born in Bethlehem, would be born of a virgin, that there would be a a, a massacre of, of children accompanying his birth, that he'd spend some of his childhood in Egypt. And it was the Old Testament prophets that anticipated the miracle that Jesus had just done, healing somebody who had been blind from birth. Those were his credentials. It was based on those credentials that the dormant said, okay, it's your time, it's your season, it's your ministry in Israel. And Israel should have recognized him for who he was based on those credentials. They should have welcomed him into the land. Even though that didn't happen, though, the effect is still the same. Notice verse 4, when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. Which is exactly what we saw happen in John 9. Blind man couldn't see Jesus, but he heard Jesus. He knew his voice, he followed Jesus. He saw the Pharisees, but he didn't follow them. He didn't follow them to the point where the Pharisees said, you don't get to follow us. The man said, I don't want to follow you. Well, that's good because you don't get to. <laughs> I don't want to. Because <laughs> the Pharisees were thieves and robbers trying to rule by force and intimidation. And the man knew he had an opportunity to follow a shepherd. Jesus used this illustration, verse 6, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Of course not, because they were the Pharisees. They'd already decided that they were sighted. They didn't need anybody to open their eyes. Some of your translations might read Jesus used this parable. It's actually not a parable. There aren't parables in John's Gospel. It's a a figure of speech. It's a metaphor. It's an allegory or, like New King James translators say, an illustration. And the illustration is that Jesus is a shepherd. He's not driving sheep from the rear. He's not pushing them, bullying them, sicking dogs on them, poking them with electric prods. He's calling them from the front and then he's walking with them. That's how Middle Eastern shepherds shepherd. He's leading them. He's leading them out of what? Well, the sheepfold was Israel. He's leading them out of Judaism. He's leading them out of the law because the law only brings death. So Jesus is leading them out of death into life. He's leading them out of judgment into grace. He's leading them out of bondage into liberty. And the Pharisees don't get it. They don't get it because they refuse to get it. Why would anyone want to leave Judaism? What could possibly be wrong with such a beautiful religion? And the fact that they ask the question proves they'll never understand the answer. Jesus already told them the answer. He's been telling them the answer for two years, but they're blind. And they're blind because they refuse to see. They were never going to get it, most of them. But Jesus wants to make sure that we get it. He wants to make sure that anybody who's listening to him on that day got it. So he keeps going. Verse 7, he said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, it says he said to them again, don't misunderstand this. This means he spoke again. He's not saying the same thing a second time. He's going to make a different point with a different illustration. Read this. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I've come for a completely different reason. I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. See, it's easy to get tangled up thinking that Jesus is saying something other than what he's saying because he's using a lot of the same language. He's still talking about thieves and robbers and sheep. And the sheepfold had a door. It's the place that the dormant slept. And a lot of people put this together and they say, wow. So Jesus must be saying, he's the one sleeping across the door and he's the one letting the sheep into the sheepfold and the sheepfold is heaven. No, because we've already been, Jesus has already explained to us, the sheepfold is Israel and he's leading them out we assume that a door means the door into something. No. Here, Jesus is saying, I'm the door out of something. I'm the door out of the fold and into the flock. I'm on the door out of Judaism and into the church. I'm the door out of the law and into grace. And, and others can dispute who Jesus was. The Pharisees were quick to deny who he was every time he showed up. But verse 8, the sheep know who's who. The beggar knew what's what. The sheep know Jesus is the shepherd, the rest are thieves and robbers. And notice the present tense, by the way. He's not talking about false messiahs who popped up from time to time throughout Israel's history. There were a lot of them. There were some, we know from secular history, that were presenting themselves as the Messiah during Jesus' day. (laughs) There were competitive messiahs in Israel at the time. That's not who he's talking about. He's talking to the guys right in front of him. He's talking to the Pharisees. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. And that shouldn't boggle our imagination that he would say that to the Pharisees. He's already called them sons of Satan. He's already talked about their father, the devil, who's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. It's not a stretch to call them thieves as well because Satan is the biggest thief that ever was. He steals our hope. He steals our promise. He steals our eternity if we can. If we're in Christ, he still tries to steal our time and our ministry. He tries to steal any part of his life he can get his hands around. He is a thief. And Jesus is the opposite of the thief. Jesus is a giver. Jesus didn't come to take, but to give. He came to give hope. He came to fulfill promises. He came to make new promises. He came to help us redeem our time, and He came to give life. Verse 9, He came to save. I read an article earlier this year that said we should stop talking like that. When, we, when somebody comes to Christ, when somebody trusts Jesus' death on the cross for their eternity, we shouldn't say that they're saved. And we shouldn't say that somebody who hasn't done that needs to be saved because it's, it's an archaic term. It's, it's, it's weird, it's off-putting, and it's not even biblical, the author said. Excuse me? <laughs> Jesus just said it. And actually, it's an incredibly rich word because if we look at how it's used, the word saved in other contexts is used as, as someone who's healed from sickness. Somebody who's... Delivered from a guilty verdict at a trial. Somebody who safely comes through a storm. Somebody who comes home from war. And and don't all of those fit? We were saved from the sickness of sin. We were saved out of the storms of this life. We were rescued from the war that we declared on God when we rebelled. We were delivered from a guilty verdict, a righteous guilty verdict. We were saved in every sense of the word. We were saved from hell. And the fact that Jesus came to do all that, the fact that he came to, to rescue us from danger, is as much as anything what makes him a shepherd. and It's what differentiates him from any other religious leader of, of his day or any other day. Verse 10, where other religious leaders come to steal, Jesus comes to save where they come to love themselves and use the sheep, even if some sheep die in the process, Jesus came to love the sheep and be used by them, by us, even if he dies in the process. Verse 11, it's not for nothing. He says, I am the Good shepherd, the excellent shepherd, the worthy shepherd, the ideal shepherd, the exemplary shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jesus is saying, I'm the one Ezekiel was talking about in chapter 34. I'm the one that Jeremiah was talking about in Jeremiah 23. I'm the one that David was talking about in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is saying, I am the door. That's one of those I am statements we've been reading lately. He's saying, I am is the shepherd, the I am. The voice in the burning bush is the shepherd who has come. The shepherd that God has sent. The shepherd that is God. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of all of that prophecy and promise. I'm everything you should have been expecting and the shepherd who loves with the greatest possible love. Because he's the shepherd who's going to become a sheep. And not just a sheep, but a baby sheep, a lamb. He's the shepherd who's going to lay his life down. If we explore this idiom of sheep and shepherding a little bit more, turns out, not surprising, the most reliable shepherds throughout history have been sons of the owners of the flock. That's not shocking, right? My aunt and uncle owned a restaurant back in Minnesota. Big Catholic family, Italian Catholic, Mary's an Irish Catholic, you do the math. And, and the thing is, whenever you walked into their restaurant, there was always a family member there, usually several. And 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 why was that? Well, they had a lot of them, they wanted to put them to work, well, maybe that but also because family trusts family. If family's there, then no one's going to mess around. If family's there, no one's going to monkey with the register. If family's there, nothing's going to disappear out the back door. Jesus is saying, I'm a good shepherd. Why? Because I'm family. I'm not just the hired help. I'm a son. That makes me different. A hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who doesn't own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. If I was just a hired hand, I wouldn't be here, Jesus is saying, because it's no secret at this point the Pharisees are trying to kill him. They tried to do it maybe earlier that day, at most earlier that week. And we do the things we do because of who we are. Before we knew Christ, we sinned. Why? Because we were sinners. That's who we were. The hired help helps. Why? Because they're getting paid. Because they've been hired. That's who they are. But you know what? What you pay a shepherd, whatever it is, isn't enough to keep a hired shepherd shepherding when the wolves come. Because wolves are dangerous. they got big, scary teeth. And if you're only there for the money, the money isn't going to be enough when the wolf comes. You're going to cut and run. The hireling flees, verse 13, because he's a hireling and doesn't care about the sheep, at least not as much as he cares about his own skin. Late 80s, I was living in New Jersey. A friend of mine comes to me and he says, hey, they're hiring ambulance crews in Trenton and they're paying big bucks. Let's go get jobs. And I said, we're not paramedics, we're EMTs. He said, they're hiring EMTs. They're hiring first responders and they're paying them paramedic money plus combat bay on top of it. Let's go. And they were, is the thing, and it really was combat pay. The reason that there were jobs is that this was a really hot, bad, violent summer and people were shooting at ambulances. (laughs) And with all that they were paying for people who weren't really qualified to do the job, it didn't work. The money wasn't enough to keep them. In fact, it made it worse because what happened when the out-of-towners drove into neighborhoods and got shot at, they bailed out and left the ambulances and the ambulances got looted and burned. (laughs) The people who hung in were the people who were native to the neighborhoods, the people who grew up there, who had family there, who cared about trying to take their neighborhood back from the chaos. Jesus is saying, the fact that I'm standing here putting myself in harm's way should prove I'm not in it for money or fame or glory. Verse 14, I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own. I'm not here for any reason but for them. I'm not here for any reason but love. And those who weren't convinced then would have another opportunity to be convinced of his love because verse 15, Jesus says, here's how the story ends. As the Father knows me, so I even know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. As he continues his journey to the cross, he's going to speak more and more often, more and more openly, about the substitutionary death that God has called him to die. The judgment that would have consumed us for all eternity, that Jesus will willingly welcome upon himself. And the righteousness that he'd enjoyed for all of eternity, that he'll be able to give us as part of that exchange. Jesus is saying, I came to make the relationship that I've had with God for forever possible for you and me. Who's you and me? When we started off the chapter you and me was, well, Israel. It wasn't you and me, most of us. Who are the sheep? When we started off, the sheep in the sheepfold were the Jews coming out of Israel. They were living in the sheepfold of Jerusalem. Verse 16, the flock gets bigger. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, Jesus says, and them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Who are the sheep not of the fold? That's us most of us. Gentiles, which isn't new information. That's part of a plan that God had also revealed through the prophets for many, many centuries. Something that God had promised again and again that the Pharisees conveniently ignored or overlooked. But with the benefit of hindsight, we see it so clearly that God's plan was always that we would be one body, neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. And that we'd all be brought into the flock the same way. Verse 17, through Christ's sacrifice. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. I'm going to choose to hand my life over. But I'm not going to stay in the grave, Jesus is saying. Again, one quality of first century shepherds and, and, and shepherds in the, in the eastern part of the world today, they don't drive the sheep with whips and prods and dogs. They lead the sheep from the front. But get that visual in your mind and, and consider the implication. If you're leading a flock from the front, that means the flock doesn't go anywhere that you don't go first. We remind ourselves so often that we don't experience any temptation that Jesus didn't suffer first. And he entered into death first. And he rose again in newness of life first. That symbol represented by the baptism. We chose Jesus, but he chose us first. He laid down his life first so we could find life in him. Why did he do that? Because God the Father asked him to. This command, Jesus says in verse 18, this command I've received from my father because God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. Why? Because sons make the best shepherds. God sent the son because he knew the son would get the job done. God sent the son and the son obeyed. The shepherd came and became a sheep so that we could come to know the shepherd. Do you know the shepherd? Have you heard his voice? If you're honest with yourself, you've heard his voice. Whether you've responded to it or not, might be a different question. But if you ignore the thieves and robbers of the world, trying to deny what's true, trying to ignore what's real, you know you've heard the shepherd's voice. If you've never heard it before, you've heard it this morning. You heard it in the music, you've heard it in this message. I'm not talking about my voice. Talking about the voice of the shepherd who led you here. Because the shepherd who brought you here today didn't bring you here for nothing. He brought you here because he wants to free you. He wants to lead you out of prison. He wants to meet you with forgiveness and mercy and bless you with eternal life. How do you get that? By choosing him. By going through the door. By letting him take care of your sin. By letting him take care of you. If you don't know Jesus, if you've never said yes to his offer of eternal life, I'm going to keep talking, but I'm going to give you permission. Listen for his voice. And understand the path to blessing isn't coming into this building or singing some songs or opening a Bible. The path to blessing isn't giving up drugs or sex or social media. The path to blessing, the door to eternal life is a person who became a sheep, a lamb, and loved you enough to die in your place. If you've never said yes to Jesus, think about that and listen for his voice while I talk to those of us who have said yes to Jesus. If, if you're here and you say, I, I know the shepherd, the question I've got to ask is the question that God has been putting before us for the last several weeks. If you know the shepherd, are you following the shepherd? A couple weeks ago, we said, how do I know if I'm following the shepherd? And Jesus said, well, here's one mark of being a follower. You abide in my word. And we spent a Sunday on that. Here's another test. How do I know if I'm following Jesus? We'll go back to verse 10. Jesus gave us another hallmark, another, another sign, another indicator. Do you have abundant life? Because Jesus came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly, verse 10. Now let's be careful because you know and I know how abused this verse is. It it gets twisted and torqued off of its axis and and turned around to mean everything but what it means. That doesn't mean we should run away from it. That doesn't mean that we should pretend it isn't there. If, If anything, it means that we should be diligent to figure out what it really does mean. What is Jesus actually saying? Well, let's start with what he's not saying. He's not saying, I've come that they might have a long life, or a rich life, or a comfortable life, or a conflict-free life. How do we know? Because he promised us specifically we couldn't count on any of those things. In this life, you will have tribulation. And our riches aren't for this world, they're stored up in heaven. Jesus told us not to count on any of those things in this world, so we know that's not what he meant by abundant life. It can't be what he meant by abundant life because because think of it this way. Did Jesus have an abundant life? reasonable person would say, yeah. But he didn't live a long life or a conflict-free life or a comfortable life. And he didn't even have a place to lay his head. He had no riches. But he still had a life that was peaceful and a life that was purposeful. He woke up every day and he went to bed every night knowing that he was in the center of the middle of God's will. And that's where he found peace, and that's where he found purpose, and that's where he made a difference. And the difference that Jesus made in his 32 years still ripples through our world today. Impacted every, every piece of history that's happened ever since. Changed philosophy forever. Changed literature forever. Forever. Most of the hospitals and, and charities in the world were founded by Christians, most of the colleges in this country, founded by the church. But the sum of all of those differences is nothing. It's minuscule compared to the difference that Jesus has made in the eternity of millions of souls. That's an abundant life, a life that's lived peacefully, peaceful with God, in harmony with God's will. A life that's making a difference, that's serving a purpose, God's purpose. How do we do that? How do we find that? How do we have that? What did Jesus just say? We follow Him. If we follow Him, we have abundant life. If we have abundant life, that's a good sign that we're following Him. Seems obvious, and it it is, nothing profound here. But it's not automatic. If we're saved by definition at one point we follow Jesus because we had to follow him out of the fold through the door. He's the door. We had to follow him that far. But question, what's happened since we passed through? Have we continued to follow or have we veered off on our own? It's scary out in the world. In the fold, in the fold of our of our religious system or our philosophy, or our arrogant agnosticism. Theoretically, the walls were there to keep us safe. What happens when we leave the safety of the fold and the walls aren't there anymore? Who do we rely on? What keeps us safe? One thing, the shepherd. He's the one with the big club to whack the wolves over the head with. He's the one who knows where the good grass and the clean water are. Because sheep are too dumb to find it for themselves. Verse 9, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out. That's a biblical idiom that means that he'll live his life. He'll go about his business, how? In peace. He'll find pasture. As long as he stays close to the shepherd. And the thing is, a lot, a lot, a lot of us don't. A lot of us wander off convinced that we're going to find better pasture somewhere. Certain that there's got to be cooler water somewhere. Cooler water than the shepherd knows about, maybe cooler water than the shepherd's willing to tell us about. It's holding out on us, not sharing the good stuff. That's wrong, of course. And if if we realize that it's wrong, if we realize, wow, we've we've strayed way far out in the world, we can't see the shepherd anymore, and we realize the danger that we're in before we get chewed up, here's what we might do in our pride. Rather than running back to the shepherd, which is what we should do and what we get to do, sometimes we say, well, (laughs) I'm here, I might as well build my own walls. Might as well try to keep myself safe. That's what our pride does. So I'm going I'm to establish some rules. I'm going to build a system. I'm going to set up my own traditions. And that will keep me safe, even if the shepherd isn't nearby. That's the history of the church, by the way. Over the last 2,000 years, there have been hundreds, literally, movements of the Holy Spirit times when Jesus calls people to to come to the door in, in, in numbers. And without exception, every movement of God ends the same way. It begins as a movement and it becomes a museum and eventually just a monument because what was filled with life and vital with the shepherd in the middle of it becomes walls built by men. Pillars and monuments to the good old days when God was really moving. The problem with the walls that we build, two problems actually. They tend to keep the wolves in. Wolves like walls because it confines the sheep. The walls we build tend to keep the wolves in and they keep sheep out. Because sheep like to graze. And we don't need to build walls, family. Got a leadership meeting after this service. What we won't have is any conversation about rules or structures or protocols. They're not needed and they're dangerous. History tells us that again and again. We aren't in charge of protecting ourselves from the world. We need to let our shepherd guide us and protect us. And to do that, we've got to stay close to him. How do we do that? We listen for his voice and we go where he is. He's promised that we'll hear it and that we'll recognize it. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. Verse 14, check this out. I know my sheep and am known by my own. Here's a better translation. Better translation, verse 14, flows right into verse 15. I know my sheep and am known by my own, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. How amazing is that? Let that that wash over you. It should take your breath away. Ann and I are old enough. We've been together long enough. we, We do the old married couples thing. We can finish each other's sentences. I usually know she's hungry before she does, and I know what she's in the mood for when she doesn't. And I know when she's sick before she does, and she knows when I'm fleshing out and need to pray before I do. It's actually easy. It's most of the time. But, but see, all of that is nothing. It's nothing compared to the unity and certainty and intimacy and focus and fellowship that exists between God the Father and God the Son. And Jesus is telling us that same unity, that same intimacy is available to us. We can be as close to God as Jesus himself is if we just listen and obey. And look what happened when Jesus did. Jesus listened and obeyed, verse 17 and 18, and God the Father blessed him in it. Therefore, verse 17, because of this, the Father loved him. Father always loved the Son. God can't not love But because the son listened and obeyed, God blessed him and rewarded him. With what? What was his exceedingly great reward? It's us. His death made it possible for us to know peace. And it also made it possible for us to be his treasure and be his bride. That was the impact of the brief life he had. The abundance of, that Christ enjoyed is the abundance of souls one to himself forever. And and, and that's the abundance that God is offering us. We've got opportunities not just to have peace with God, but to be instruments of his peace. To go in and out, verse 9, to go into his presence and worship as we have here today, and then to go out into the world and be his witnesses. We get to not only be his abundance, We get to enjoy the abundance that comes from knowing that we're knowing and doing His will. That's peace that surpasses understanding. That's joy indescribable. Is that us? Are we seeking to know and do His will? Are we desiring to stay close to Him? And yeah, one way to do that like we talked about a couple weeks ago is being in His word. It's the chief way that God communicates with us. And I have heard from several people, and if I've heard from several, I want to believe that there's several, severals more that said that that setting aside time every day to meet with God has been nothing short of life-changing. I've had several people use that phrase. What's the most important part of that time, though? Isn't it the listening? It's one thing to read the words. The Pharisees read the words. The Pharisees could recite the words. But they didn't hear what the words were saying. The sheep know the shepherd's voice and the sheep listen for it because they know that that's the voice of safety. That's the voice of pasture and prosperity. That's the voice of blessing. Sheep are are scared to be away from the shepherd's voice. Do we have that same fear? Do we have a healthy fear of not hearing God's voice? And do we have an even greater fear of not obeying it when we hear it? Because the shepherd knows where the wolves are. And the shepherd knows where the water is. Are we taking time to listen? And are we taking time to ask, God, is there, is there anything I haven't done? Is there any way in which I haven't obeyed you? And are we stopping everything, everything, until we correct that situation? Because that's how we find abundant life. That's how we fulfill our purpose. That's where we discover peace. That's where the abundant life is waiting for us. In the words of our shepherd, Lord, speak to us and we say that in your name because we know it's in your will because you've just promised that that's who you are and what you do. Lord, you've led us out of death and darkness. You've brought us into your light. Lord, would you continue leading us? Would you show us, would you speak to us where the middle of the center of your will is that we can Go there and be there and prosper there and be peaceful there and fulfill your purposes there. Make a difference there. Declare your truth there. Love people in your name there. big chunk of time passes after verse 21, so we're going to go away from John 10 next week, but we'll come back. But this passage ends, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and his man. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are, not, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can demons open the eyes of the blind? The Puritans were right. Holiness doesn't always unite. And it's not only hell that divides. Jesus divides. The gospel divides. The gospel divides. It always has. People need to decide. We need to decide. Is Jesus a lunatic or is he the Lord? And here at the end of this passage, people were faced with that same dilemma, that same conundrum. And some said, He's out of his mind. He's possessed by a demon. And others said, Demons don't heal, demons aren't merciful. Demons don't love. He must be the Lord. If you've never made that decision, is there something that doesn't make sense to you? Is there a question that, that you have or that somebody else has used to challenge the gospel? What, what's keeping you from coming to Jesus? Can we at least talk about it? Don't want to hound you or badger you or, you know, Jesus is a shepherd, he leads from the front. He doesn't poke with a cattle prod. That's not us. That's that's not the God that we worship and that's not how we try to be. But Jesus answered every question that was put to him. And so come and ask. And, And if we're able to answer, you're that much closer to hearing and responding to the voice of the God who created you and who wants to lead and shepherd you and bring you into green pastures and bless you. But if that's in your rear mirror, you've gone through the door, you've taken that step, can I encourage us to go before God and listen for his voice? We do that so little. God, what would you have for me? How do we respond to the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus? How do we respond? How do we say thank you? Jesus says the way to thank me is to follow me. The way to thank me is to listen and obey me. Have you listened lately? Have we been quiet enough, long enough to hear his still small voice? Lord, would you speak to us as we consider the price that you paid for our salvation, Lord? How would you have us respond? What is it to follow you? How can we lay down our lives to worship you? Lord, use this time by your grace to lead us. Why the cross? Why did Jesus lay down his life for us? We just read the Father told him to. Okay, why would the Father tell him to? Because he loved us and God so loved the world. Why did he love us when we rebelled against him? Why did he love us? I don't know, I don't think we can know. I, 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 I don't think that if God tried to explain it, we could comprehend it. I think the closest we can come is to just recognize love is as love does. We do the things we do because of who we are. God is love. He can't not love. What does he invite us to do? He invites us to be like him. Equips us to be like him. Gives us an opportunity to love people and love him. Lord, show us by your name what what that means to each of us. Speak to us, Lord, Lord, shepherd us, lead us, feed us, strengthen us, and use us in places and times of your choosing for your glory. We hope the Lord has spoken to you through his word today. If you've got questions or comments about this message, we'd love to hear from you. And if you're in the Wichita area and don't have a church that you call home, I hope you'll drop by and check us out. You can always get current service times and directions at area code 316-263-3804 or online at www.ccwichita.org. Most importantly though, please remember, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. We've all sinned, we've all rebelled against God, and the penalty for that sin is eternal death. But God in his mercy sent Jesus to pay that price, to die that death for us. That's why Jesus went to the cross 2,000 years ago, He died so we wouldn't have to. And he rose again in glory, promising eternal life with him forever for those who put their trust in him. So if you haven't decided what to do with the cross, why not say yes to Christ's free gift of salvation right now? You can do it wherever you are simply by praying, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I confess I am a sinner and I need your free gift of salvation. Jesus, please come into my life. Be my savior and be my Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. The scripture tells us if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you are his. So pick up a Bible and start reading. Begin at the Gospel of John to understand and rejoice in everything it means to be a child of God. If you're in the Wichita area, I hope that you'll stop by. We'll make sure you have a Bible along with some materials to help you begin your walk with the Lord. If you're not close by, feel free to give us a call. We'll be glad to help you find a solid Bible teaching church in your area. Thanks again for listening. May the Lord richly bless you as you commit your ways to him.